Chapter Three, Part One of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Three, Part One. Chapter Three, Lord Melbourne. One. The new queen was almost entirely unknown to her subjects. In her public appearances her mother had invariably dominated the scene. Her private life had been that of a novice in a convent. Hardly a human being from the outside world had ever spoken to her, and no human being at all, except her mother and the Baroness Lehzen, had ever been alone with her in a room. Thus it was not only the public at large that was in ignorance of everything concerning her. The inner circles of statesmen and officials and high-born ladies were equally in the dark. When she suddenly emerged from this deep obscurity, the impression that she created was immediate and profound. Her bearing at her first council filled the whole gathering with astonishment and admiration. The Duke of Wellington, Sir Robert Peel, even the savage Croker, even the cold and caustic Greville, all were completely carried away. Everything that was reported of her subsequent proceedings seemed to be of no less happy augury. Her perceptions were quick, her decisions were sensible, her language was discreet. She performed her royal duties with extraordinary facility. Among the outside public there was a great wave of enthusiasm. Sentiment and romance were coming into fashion, and the spectacle of the little girl queen, innocent, modest, with fair hair and pink cheeks, driving through her capital, filled the hearts of the beholders with raptures of affectionate loyalty. What above all struck everybody with overwhelming force was the contrast between Queen Victoria and her uncles. The nasty old men, debauched and selfish, pig-headed and ridiculous, with their perpetual burden of debts, confusions, and disreputabilities, they had vanished like the snows of winter, and here at last, crowned and radiant, was the spring. Lord John Russell, in an elaborate oration, gave voice to the general sentiment. He hoped that Victoria might prove an Elizabeth without her tyranny, an Anne without her weakness. He asked England to pray that the illustrious princess who had just ascended the throne with the purest intentions and the justest desires might see slavery abolished crime diminished, and education improved. He trusted that her people would henceforward derive their strength, their conduct, and their loyalty from enlightened religious and moral principles, and that, so fortified, the reign of Victoria might prove celebrated to posterity and to all the nations of the earth. Very soon, however, there were signs that the future might turn out to be not quite so simple and roseate as a delighted public dreamed. The illustrious princess might perhaps, after all, have something within her which squared ill with the easy vision of a well-conducted heroine in an edifying storybook. The purest intentions and the justest desires? No doubt. But was that all? To those who watched closely, for instance, there might be something ominous in the curious contour of that little mouth. 
when after her first counsel she crossed the anteroom and found her mother waiting for her she said and now mamma am i really and truly queen you see my dear that it is so then dear mamma i hope you will grant me the first request i make to you as queen let me be by myself for an hour for an hour she remained in solitude then she reappeared and gave a significant order her bed was to be moved out of her mother's room it was the doom of the duchess of kent the long years of waiting were over at last the moment of a lifetime had come her daughter was queen of england and that very moment brought her own annihilation she found herself absolutely and irretrievably shut off from every vestige of influence of confidence of power she was surrounded indeed by all the outward signs of respect and consideration but that only made the inward truth of her position the more intolerable through the mingled formalities of court etiquette and filial duty she could never penetrate to victoria she was unable to conceal her disappointment and her rage il n'y a plus d'avenir pour moi she exclaimed to madame de lieven je ne suis plus rien for eighteen years she said this child had been the sole object of her existence of her thoughts her hopes and now no she would not be comforted she had lost everything she was to the last degree unhappy sailing so gallantly and so pertinaciously through the buffeting storms of life the stately vessel with sails still swelling and pennons flying had put into harbour at last to find there nothing a land of bleak desolation within a month of the accession the realities of the new situation assumed a visible shape the whole royal household moved from kensington to buckingham palace and in the new abode the duchess of kent was given a suite of apartments entirely separate from the queen's by victoria herself the change was welcomed though at the moment of departure she could afford to be sentimental though i rejoice to go into b p for many reasons she wrote in her diary it is not without feelings of regret that i shall bid adieu for ever to this my birthplace where i have been born and bred and to which i am really attached her memory lingered for a moment over visions of the past her sister's wedding pleasant balls and delicious concerts and there were other recollections i have gone through painful and disagreeable scenes here tis true she concluded but still i am fond of the poor old palace at the same time she took another decided step she had determined that she would see no more of sir john conroy she rewarded his past services with liberality he was given a baronetcy and a pension of three thousand pounds a year he remained a member of the duchess's household but his personal intercourse with the queen came to an abrupt conclusion two it was clear that these interior changes whatever else they might betoken marked the triumph of one person the baroness Leitzen. the pastor's daughter observed the ruin of her enemies discreet and victorious she remained in possession of the field more closely than ever did she cleave to the side of her mistress her pupil and her friend and in the recesses of the palace 
her mysterious figure was at once invisible and omnipresent. When the Queen's ministers came in at one door, the Baroness went out by another. When they retired, she immediately returned. Nobody knew, nobody ever will know, the precise extent and the precise nature of her influence. She herself declared that she never discussed public affairs with the Queen, that she was concerned with private matters only, with private letters and the details of private life. Certainly her hand is everywhere discernible in Victoria's early correspondence. The journal is written in the style of a child. The letters are not so simple. They are the work of a child, rearranged, with the minimum of alteration, no doubt, and yet perceptibly, by a governess. And the governess was no fool. Narrow, jealous, provincial she might be, but she was an acute and vigorous woman who had gained by a peculiar insight a peculiar ascendancy. That ascendancy she meant to keep. No doubt it was true that technically she took no part in public business, but the distinction between what is public and what is private is always a subtle one and in the case of a reigning sovereign, as the next few years were to show, it is often imaginary. Considering all things, the characters of the persons and the character of the times, it was something more than a mere matter of private interest that the bedroom of Baroness Leitzen at Buckingham Palace should have been next door to the bedroom of the Queen. But the influence wielded by the Baroness, supreme as it seemed within its own sphere, was not unlimited there were other forces at work. For one thing, the faithful Stockmar had taken up his residence in the palace. During the twenty years which had elapsed since the death of the Princess Charlotte, his experiences had been varied and remarkable. The unknown counsellor of a disappointed princeling had gradually risen to a position of European importance. His devotion to his master had been not only whole-hearted, but cautious and wise. It was Stockmar's advice that had kept Prince Leopold in England during the critical years which followed his wife's death, and had thus secured to him the essential requisite of a point d'appui in the country of his adoption. It was Stockmar's discretion which had smoothed over the embarrassments surrounding the prince's acceptance and rejection of the Greek crown. It was Stockmar who had induced the prince to become the constitutional sovereign of Belgium. Above all, it was Stockmar's tact, honesty and diplomatic skill which through a long series of arduous and complicated negotiations had led to the guarantee of belgian neutrality by the great powers his labours had been rewarded by a german barony and by the complete confidence of king leopold nor was it only in brussels that he was treated with respect and listened to with attention the statesmen who governed england lord grey sir robert peel lord palmerston lord melbourne had learned to put a high value upon his probity and his intelligence. "'He is one of the cleverest fellows I ever saw,' said Lord Melbourne. "'The most discreet man, the most well-judging, and most cool man.' And Lord Palmerston cited Baron Stockmar as the only absolutely disinterested man he had come across in life. At last he was able to retire to Coburg, and to enjoy for a few years the society of the wife and children whom his labours in the service of his master had hitherto only allowed him to visit at long intervals for a month or two at a time. 
but in 1836 he had been again entrusted with an important negotiation, which he had brought to a successful conclusion in the marriage of Prince Ferdinand of Saxe-Coburg, a nephew of King Leopold's, with Queen Maria II of Portugal. The House of Coburg was beginning to spread over Europe, and the establishment of the Baron at Buckingham Palace in 1837 was to be the prelude of another and a more momentous advance. King Leopold and his counsellor provide in their careers an example of the curious diversity of human ambitions. The desires of man are wonderfully various, but no less various are the means by which those desires may reach satisfaction, and so the work of the world gets done. The correct mind of Leopold craved for the whole apparatus of royalty. Mere power would have held no attractions for him. He must be an actual king, the crowned head of a people. It was not enough to do. It was essential also to be recognized. Anything else would not be fitting. The greatness that he dreamt of was surrounded by every appropriate circumstance. To be a majesty, to be a cousin of sovereigns, to marry a Bourbon for diplomatic ends, to correspond with the Queen of England, to be very stiff and very punctual, to found a dynasty, to bore ambassadresses into fits, to live on the highest pinnacle, an exemplary life devoted to the public service, such were his objects, and such, in fact, were his achievements. The Marquis peu à peu, as George the Fourth called him, had what he wanted. But this would never have been the case if it had not happened that the ambition of Stockmar took a form exactly complementary to his own. The sovereignty that the Baron sought for was by no means obvious. The satisfaction of his essential being lay in obscurity, in invisibility, in passing unobserved through a hidden entrance into the very central chamber of power, and in sitting there quietly, pulling the subtle strings that set the wheels of the whole world in motion. A very few people, in very high places, and exceptionally well informed, knew that Baron Stockmar was a most important person. That was enough. The fortunes of the master and the servant, intimately interacting, rose together. The baron's secret skill had given Leopold his unexceptionable kingdom, and Leopold in his turn, as time went on, was able to furnish the baron with more and more keys to more and more back doors. Stockmar took up his abode in the palace partly as the emissary of King Leopold, but more particularly as the friend and adviser of a queen who was almost a child, and who, no doubt, would be much in need of advice and friendship. For it would be a mistake to suppose that either of these two men was actuated by a vulgar selfishness. The king, indeed, was very well aware on which side his bread was buttered. During an adventurous and checkered life he had acquired a shrewd knowledge of the world's workings, and he was ready enough to use that knowledge to strengthen his position and to spread his influence. But then, the firmer his position and the wider his influence, the better for Europe. Of that he was quite certain. And besides, he was a constitutional monarch, and it would be highly indecorous in a constitutional monarch to have any aims that were low or personal. As for Stockmar, 
The disinterestedness which Palmerston had noted was undoubtedly a basic element in his character. The ordinary schemer is always an optimist, and Stockmar, racked by dyspepsia and haunted by gloomy forebodings, was a constitutionally melancholy man. A schemer, no doubt, he was, but he schemed distrustfully, splenetically, to do good. To do good? What nobler end could a man scheme for? Yet it is perilous to scheme at all. With Leitzen to supervise every detail of her conduct, with Stockmar in the next room, so full of wisdom and experience of affairs, with her uncle Leopold's letters, too, pouring out so constantly their stream of encouragements, general reflections, and highly valuable tips, Victoria, even had she been without other guidance, would have stood in no lack of private counsellor. But other guidance she had, for all these influences paled before a new star of the first magnitude, which, rising suddenly upon her horizon, immediately dominated her life. 3. William Lamb, Viscount Melbourne, was fifty-eight years of age, and had been for the last three years Prime Minister of England. In every outward respect he was one of the most fortunate of mankind. He had been born into the midst of riches, brilliance, and power. His mother, fascinating and intelligent, had been a great Whig hostess, and he had been bred up as a member of that radiant society which, during the last quarter of the eighteenth century, concentrated within itself the ultimate perfections of a hundred years of triumphant aristocracy. Nature had given him beauty and brains. The unexpected death of an elder brother brought him wealth, a peerage, and the possibility of high advancement. Within that charmed circle, whatever one's personal disabilities, it was difficult to fail, and to him, with all his advantages, success was well-nigh unavoidable. With little effort he attained political eminence. On the triumph of the Whigs he became one of the leading members of the government, and when Lord Grey retired from the premiership, he quietly stepped into the vacant place. Nor was it only in the visible signs of fortune that fate had been kind to him. Bound to succeed, and to succeed easily, he was gifted with so fine a nature that his success became him, his mind at once supple and copious, his temperament at once calm and sensitive, enabled him not merely to work, but to live with perfect facility and with the grace of strength. In society he was a notable talker, a captivating companion, a charming man. If one looked deeper, one saw at once that he was not ordinary, that the piquancies of his conversation and his manner, his free and easy vaguenesses, his abrupt questions, his lollings and loungings, his innumerable oaths, were something more than an amusing ornament, were the outward manifestation of an individuality that was fundamental. The precise nature of this individuality was very difficult to gauge. It was dubious, complex, perhaps self-contradictory. Certainly there was an ironical discordance between the inner history of the man and his apparent fortunes. He owed all he had to his birth, and his birth was shameful. It was known well enough that his mother had passionately loved Lord Egremont, and that Lord Melbourne was not his father. 
his marriage, which had seemed to be the crown of his youthful ardors, was a long, miserable, desperate failure. The incredible Lady Caroline, with pleasures too refined to please, with too much spirit to be air at ease, with too much quickness to be ever taught, with too much thinking to have common thought, was very nearly the destruction of his life. When at last he emerged from the anguish and confusion of her folly, her extravagance, her rage, her despair, and her devotion, he was left alone with endless memories of intermingled farce and tragedy, and an only son who was an imbecile. But there was something else that he owed to Lady Caroline. While she whirled with Byron in a hectic frenzy of love and fashion, he had stayed at home in an indulgence bordering on cynicism and occupied his solitude with reading. It was thus that he had acquired those habits of study, that love of learning, and that wide and accurate knowledge of ancient and modern literature which formed so unexpected a part of his mental equipment. His passion for reading never deserted him. Even when he was prime minister he found time to master every new important book. With an incongruousness that was characteristic, his favorite study was theology. An accomplished classical scholar, he was deeply read in the Fathers of the Church. Heavy volumes of commentary and exegesis he examined with scrupulous diligence, and at any odd moment he might be found turning over the pages of the Bible. To the ladies whom he most liked, he would lend some learned work on the Revelation, crammed with marginal notes in his own hand, or Dr. Lardner's Observations Upon the Jewish Errors with Respect to the Conversion of Mary Magdalene. The more pious among them had high hopes that these studies would lead him into the right way, but of this there were no symptoms in his after-dinner conversations. The paradox of his political career was no less curious. By temperament an aristocrat, by conviction a conservative, he came to power as the leader of the popular party, the party of change. He had profoundly disliked the reform bill, which he had only accepted at last as a necessary evil, and the reform bill lay at the root of the very existence, the very meaning of his government. He was far too skeptical to believe in progress of any kind things were best as they were, or rather, they were least bad. You'd better try to do no good, was one of his dictums, and then you'll get into no scrapes. Education, at best, was futile. Education of the poor was positively dangerous. The factory children? Oh, if you'd only have the goodness to leave them alone. Free trade was a delusion. The ballot was nonsense and there was no such thing as a democracy. Nevertheless, he was not a reactionary. He was simply an opportunist. The whole duty of government, he said, was to prevent crime and to preserve contracts. All one could really hope to do was to carry on. He himself carried on in a remarkable manner with perpetual compromises, with fluctuations and contradictions, with every kind of weakness, and yet with shrewdness, with gentleness, even with conscientiousness, and a light and airy mastery of men and of events. He conducted the transactions of business with extraordinary nonchalance. 
important persons ushered up for some grave interview found him in a tousled bed littered with books and papers or vaguely shaving in a dressing-room but when they went downstairs again they would realize that somehow or other they had been pumped when he had to receive a deputation he could hardly ever do so with becoming gravity the worthy delegates of the tallow chandlers or the society for the abolition of capital punishment were distressed and mortified when in the midst of their speeches the prime minister became absorbed in blowing a feather or suddenly cracked an unseemly joke how could they have guessed that he had spent the night before diligently getting up the details of their case he hated patronage and the making of appointments a feeling rare in ministers as for the bishops he burst out i positively believe they die to vex me but when at last the appointment was made it was made with keen discrimination his colleagues observed another symptom was it of his irresponsibility or his wisdom he went to sleep in the cabinet probably if he had been born a little earlier he would have been a simpler and a happier man as it was he was a child of the eighteenth century whose lot was cast in a new difficult unsympathetic age he was an autumn rose with all his gracious amenity his humour his happy-go-lucky ways a deep disquietude possessed him a sentimental cynic a sceptical believer he was restless and melancholy at heart above all he could never harden himself those sensitive petals shivered in every wind whatever else he might be one thing was certain lord melbourne was always human supremely human too human perhaps and now with old age upon him his life took a sudden new extraordinary turn he became in the twinkling of an eye the intimate adviser and the daily companion of a young girl who had stepped all at once from a nursery to a throne his relations with women had been like everything else about him ambiguous nobody had ever been able quite to gauge the shifting emotional complexities of his married life lady caroline vanished but his peculiar susceptibilities remained female society of some kind or other was necessary to him and he did not stint himself a great part of every day was invariably spent in it the feminine element in him made it easy made it natural and inevitable for him to be the friend of a great many women but the masculine element in him was strong as well in such circumstances it is also easy it is even natural perhaps it is even inevitable to be something more than a friend there were rumours and combustions lord melbourne was twice a co-respondent in a divorce action but on each occasion he won his suit the lovely lady brandon the unhappy and brilliant mrs norton the law exonerated them both beyond that hung an impenetrable veil but at any rate it was clear that with such a record the prime minister's position in buckingham palace must be a highly delicate one however he was used to delicacies and he met the situation with consummate success his behaviour was from the first moment impeccable his manner towards the young queen mingled with perfect facility the watchfulness and the respect of a statesman and a courtier with the tender solicitude of a parent 
He was at once reverential and affectionate, at once the servant and the guide. At the same time, the habits of his life underwent a surprising change. His comfortable, unpunctual days became subject to the unaltering routine of a palace. No longer did he sprawl on sofas. Not a single damn escaped his lips. The man of the world who had been the friend of Byron and the regent, the talker whose paradoxes had held Holland House enthralled, the cynic whose ribaldries had enlivened so many deep potations, the lover whose soft words had captivated such beauty and such passion and such wit, might now be seen, evening after evening, talking with infinite politeness to his schoolgirl, bolt upright, amid the silence and the rigidity of court etiquette. End of chapter 3, part 1